and welcome to Mining Facts in the Evolving Australia-India Relationship, uh, a La Trobe-Asia event in conjunction with AsiaLink. Uh, I'm Ewan Graham. I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe-Asia at La Trobe University. I'd like to start this event um, by acknowledging the elders of the Boon Wurrung and Wurundjeri people, who are the traditional custodians of the land. Uh, I would like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians. The Trobage is very proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the region in which we live. Now, there's no such thing as a bad time to do an event about India. It's a, a large um, partner, um, and Australia-India relations, I think, at any time uh, are worthy of uh, attention. But um, if we're looking for topicality in this year, um, it's one obvious symmetry between the two countries. We have sets of elections coming um, next month in, uh, in India, uh, and, um, which will be concluded in May, uh, and that's the same month when, of course, there will be a, a federal election here in, in Australia. So, in a sense, um, uh, potential for, for all change and a question mark around whether there will be uh, continuity in the relationship going forward. I'd like to thank um, a few people up front for their um, help in getting this event uh, off the ground. Uh, Sujit uh, Danj, who's um, a postdoctoral fellow, fellow uh, in the uh, India Diaspora and Trade uh, Relations of the India Australia India Institute. I'd also like to thank uh, Emeritus Professor uh, Robin Jeffrey uh, of La Trobe University uh, uh, and an advisory board member, both of whom are, are present here tonight. Um, I'd also like to thank very much AsiaLink for their help and agreement, very short notice, to uh, co-host this event. Uh, and um, last, but certainly by no, no means least, um, Ali Moore, also from AsiaLink, for, for moderating here tonight. And I'd just like to say a few words to introduce Ali. I think many of you will recognize her. Um, she's a celebrity in her own right. Uh, a journalist and the vice-chancellor's fellow from Melbourne, Uni Melbourne University, um, but with the ABC for many years. Uh, and one thing that jumps out to me from uh, Ali's bio is the strength of Asia in her own um, portfolio, having been the ABC correspondent in China uh, and also based with the BBC uh, in Singapore and for Channel 9 uh, here in Australia covering Asian issues on a, on a regular basis. And um, I'm very glad that Ali's been kind enough to um, volunteer her time here tonight to ensure that you'll get a professional grilling uh, of our um, assembled panellists. And thank you to them too, um, particularly at the at start of teaching time. So my academic colleagues, I'd like to uh, acknowledge their kindness in making time um, for, for the event. Um, so without further ado, there will be a chance um, for you. Thank you for, for your um, presence here tonight for question and answers. Um, Ali, over to you. Thanks, Ewan. Um, and if I can just say thank you so much, all of you, for coming. It's a nice small group, so I think we should make this a real conversation. So I will, um, I'll have a bit of a chat. I won't grill them so much, but I'll have a little chat with our panel and then open it up for questions, and I'll be really interested to hear what you would like to know from our experts here. I wanted to start with a quote from the India Economic Strategy to 2035. I don't know how familiar you are with this, but this was the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade publication produced by Peter Varghese. And it says, quote, there is no market over the next 20 years which offers more growth opportunities for Australian business than India. 
And I think about that statement and I think, well, of course, opportunities make something possible, but they don't necessarily make it happen. And when you think about the Australia-India relationship, it's almost wistfully described by some as being stuck in the three C's, and that is the curry, the cricket, and the Commonwealth, not necessarily in that order. And according to the Financial Review, Australia's investment in New Zealand is more than 10 times what it is in India. Our two-way trade with New Zealand is on a par with our two-way trade with New Zealand. Bearing in mind, New Zealand's got 5 million people, and India, of course, has got 1.3 billion. So we clearly have a bit of a way to go. And yet at the same time as there's that sort of faltering economic relationship, the diplomatic and security language of Australia very much embraces India now. I mean, there's no question that Indo-Pacific has... Uh, has now taken over and truly replaced Asia-Pacific. And there was a lovely uh, quote from former Foreign Minister Gareth Evans in a speech last year when he talked about Indo-Pacific, and he said, obviously, we like it because it reflects the reality that we've always looked geographically west as well as north and east. He went on to say, and India likes it because it reflects the reality of its own vital role in the future of the region. So to follow that change language, Australia has also deepened its security ties. But the question now is, what does the future hold? And particularly at a time, as Ewan said, when both countries are going to the polls. Of course, Australia's polls are rather faster than India's polls, but that's very understandable when you consider the, uh, the differences in population. So how do we, when we've got compelling reasons, how do we build closer ties? What is the answer to that question? That is why we have three terrific panel members here. We don't have a fourth. Of course, you would be aware that Adani was meant to be joining us, but they, uh, they weren't able to make it, which is disappointing, but by no means diminishes the conversation. So please welcome our panel. At the end, we have Professor Ian Hall, Professor of International Relations at Griffith University. He is the author of Modi and the Reinvention of Indian Foreign Policy, published by Bristol University Press. And he's currently working on an Australian Research Council-funded discovery project on the evolution of Indian thinking about world politics since 1964. I'm guessing that's rather a long book. <laughs> Dr. Ruth Gamble is the David Myers Research Fellow at Atrobe University. She's an environmental and cultural historian. She's currently working on an environmental history of the upper Brahmaputra River Basin uh, in the borderlands between China and India. Uh, and I, I should point out to you, she speaks several Tibetan languages, including Bhutanese and Sikhanese and Hindi and a smattering of Chinese. And she reads Sanskrit. So she's very, very uh, good at understanding what is going on on the ground in India and China. And we have Shabir Wahid, who's the director of the VFS Global Services. He's a former Australian Consul General and Trade Commissioner to India. And since arriving here in Melbourne in 1982, he successfully exported Australian primary products such as bulk minerals, uh, including steaming and coking coal and agricultural products, to India and also the Middle East. Please welcome our panel. So, Ian, if we can start with a broad overview of the Australia-India relationship, can you paint a picture of the strength or otherwise of that relationship? Uh, yeah, so look, what we've seen over the last 15 years or so is a real transformation in the relationship, actually. Um, if we go back to the early 2000s, uh, neither side really took a lot of interest in each other, whether it was economic, trade, investment, and so on. But certainly the sort of political, strategic security side as well, there was not a huge amount of contact. 
Uh, and there were misunderstandings that came up and there were problems that emerged in the relationship which held the two aside. If we go back to 1998 and to those notorious uh, nuclear tests which were conducted by India at that point, Australia as a great uh, standard bearer for the, for the non-proliferation regime uh, criticised India very strongly and India, Indian diplomats, Indian political elite didn't like that very much at all. It took a lot of work, a lot of energy to kind of to put that all together, and it also took a lot of other events as well. So the events of 9-11, the American engagement of India happened in parallel. A whole number of things came together, plus, of course, the, the big question of how to manage China and China's rise in the region. And over, But in 15 years, in a relatively short period of time, what we've seen is this emergence of a very strong political and security relationship we saw a kind of spurt of growth in trade and investment, uh, which then plateaued. And over the last 10 years, bilateral trade has pretty much stayed around the, about the same. It's about $20 billion a year, and it stayed that, like that, despite all the other changes that have gone on, um, despite India's extraordinary economic growth over that period. Um, so we've seen uh, a, a much stronger political relationship. I think both sides understand each other a lot more than they did in the past. They're, they understand each other's political systems. They understand the dynamics of the elections, what they mean, and so on. We've got a very strong defence and security intelligence relationship now, but the economic relationship has been the one thing that has just not take, not just gone at the energy, the speed that we would have, would have liked. Uh, yeah. One has not translated to the other That's right. uh, by any stretch. Shabir, can I ask you whether you think the India economic strategy is right when it says that India offers more growth opportunities than any other market for Australia? Yeah. I don't think I'm, I can comment, comment on being the, large, the largest uh, growth market, um, Ali, but I think there's tremendous opportunity there. And um, I would probably classify Australia's uh, interest in economic advancement with India as being one of missed opportunities. Um, even though we don't talk about the three Cs anymore, but that is um, a fact, that there is so much of commonality between... Australia and India, um, and maybe we take that commonality for accepted. Um, I know that when I was based in Mumbai, I would have a lot of Australian exporters lining up in my office and saying uh, they want to do business. And uh, I would ask them, so what homework have they done? What research have they done? And they'd say, oh, look, it doesn't matter. Everybody here speaks English. So you know they can understand me, I can understand them, and we can do business. But Unfortunately, that's not how it happens. Um, so it, it, you know, perhaps it's that taking for granted, but al also I would put it in perspective that all of this has happened post-liberalization um, because prior to liberalization, India was a closed market. So in terms of the growth, I think perhaps we need to look at what has happened after India liber liberalized. And one of the big things that happened post-liberalization was actually the import of steaming coal from Australia. It happened maybe a couple of years after the taxes were removed that India decided that their steaming coal production was not of very high quality and that they would import it from outside. And they floated the very first tender and Australia won that tender. Uh, so, so it was a very auspicious start, but it hasn't 
built into anything. And, and in fact, we talk about the three C's, but it was notable that Scott Morrison, in a speech that was given when the Indian president was here recently, he's, he used the cooking analogy. He said, we're still at the early stages of cooking. We're infusing the oil with the cloves and the curry leaves. I mean, you know, it, it does seem extraordinary that even though we were among the first with that, uh, that steaming coal contract, where are we in 2019? Well... Where are we now? Um, India is uh, well, India imported about 170 million tons of steaming coal in the last um, year. 67 percent of that came from Indonesia, and roughly about 20 to 25 percent came from South Africa, and the rest was from other sources like um, the USA, Colombia, and Australia. So Australia's participation now in steaming coal is probably around two or three percent of India's total imports, and. I think given an option, India would prefer to buy Australian coal because they do know, having used Australian coal, they do know how, what a high quality it is and just how good it is. But it is the, the pricing of Australian coal. And I will say that Australian coal mining is amongst the most economic, the best uh, practice, mining practice in the world. Now that's coal, and we will talk further about yeah. coal in a minute, but Ruth, if I can ask you to just look a little bit beyond energy at this point, how do you see the relationship between the two countries, and particularly in terms of the economic development model of India, mm -hmm. how that affects Indian people, mm -hmm. and how that could flow on to Australia? Um, so uh, India's development model um, has... Uh, is working. It is working different. To, um, I'll compare it to China because that's the one that people tend to uh, look at when they look at Australia's um, Australian developing markets. Uh, India's development model has gone on a different track. I mean, energy is a big part of it, uh, but it has tended to focus on more service industries and less of the large manufacturing. Uh, so the the coal and the exports have been underpinning uh, service industries as opposed to big manufacturing hubs. Um, so it's going to have a different. You're going to have to have different elements to uh, the the developing market from Australia's perspective, and and that's probably why, uh, along with coal, education has been one of the biggest uh, and is considered to be the key uh, market. It's also, I would say, kind of problematic if we're going to focus on coal um, <laughs> as the uh, as the main source of the interactions between Australia and India, considering. Uh, the environmental impacts uh, that, uh, um, that that coal can have in India, and uh, the strains that the uh, pace of development in India is putting on the environment and uh, the social infrastructure, uh, the social connections in India. Um, so, if we could uh, have a uh, a, a policy from Australia of working in India with social responsibility uh, and uh, try and work uh, ways to... Um, I, I mean, coal is... Australian coal is probably going to help India because of the low-quality coal that's being used there anyway. But if we could have a, more of a strategy, uh, a, a whole society strategy in our relationships with India would probably last us longer into the um, into the future as opposed to just focusing on a maybe uh, a finishing industry. But do you have the same climate change uh, debate, political discourse that you in India that you have in Australia? About whether it's real or not? Well, well let's, let's take a slightly further on that. Um, no. <laughs> um, I don't think... I haven't... Uh, well, actually, I have met a couple of people who've told me that climate change... Disc, uh, the, the conversation around climate change is a 
conspiracy by white people to keep um, India and China down, but apart we'll put them to one side. Um, in, the, in the mainstream conversations, you don't have the same argument. Uh, even uh, the is, it, is it the same political uh, issue imperative here, really, that it's become? In this country. It, it, it seems to be kind of very fragmented. So, so uh, Modi, the uh, Narendra Modi, the uh, right, uh, the right-wing uh, conservative uh, leader, has hasn't been arguing against uh, climate change, and in fact has been a big promoter of uh, alternative energy sources as well as coal. And I think that that's probably what you're looking at. It's India is developing so fast and is changing so so in such a big way uh, that. Uh, whether it's coal, whether it's solar, whether it's hydro. I mean, it's still a, very much most of its energy comes from, from coal, um, but it is changing so fast that it, that it, needs, it, it wants to take in all of these different elements. Yeah, but, there, but it is a nation that is feeling the impacts of climate change now, right? And, and, and there's no one arguing uh, that it's not happening, yeah. If we stay on the... the Except sort of... that one guy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If we stay on the economic and trade side, Ian, how much complementarity do you see between the two economies? As I said earlier, just because there are opportunities doesn't mean it's going to happen. I think that's where there's 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 a tricky there are tricky issues. So, what Australia has been exporting to India has been primarily yes, coal, raw materials, but also education related services. But when we talk about those, Australia is a little bit odd in how it thinks about that. So it thinks about students coming here as exports, mm. uh, and not everybody conceives of, of students coming here in, in that in that way. And certainly, we might kind of categorise that as, as economists as as exports, but it's a different kind of social dynamic, if you like. We export lots of gemstones, diamonds and such like that go into Gujarat, where they you know, cut and turn into jewellery and things like that. That's a pretty major, that's in the top five or so of exports over the last decade or so. Um, where I think we, you know, Australia is, not, is strong in services, but so is India, and that's where we start to get, things start to get a bit more complicated. So, uh, you know, then they get clashes rather than complementarity. You know, in banking, financial services and things like that, in, uh, in some of the sort of back-end business services and so on, we end up directly competing with, with, with Indian businesses. And we also end up coming up against the big frustration, which is that liberalisation happened in the 1990s and it was very significant in India, but it didn't go all the way. And in India still has a heavily protected market in some sectors, in all, and particularly in things like agriculture. So, you know, services, yes, agriculture is another one. Australia is a huge agricultural exporter. Potentially there's an enormous market in India for Australian goods. Uh, but... India's farmers are are very high, very strongly, heavily protected by the government for you know good and bad political reasons. So Peter Varghese's report, I'm, I'm not advocating anybody goes and reads the whole 500 pages. It is excellent, all 500 pages of it. But <laughs> if you read the summaries of this it, this is a very good summary. We should say <laughs> it does a very very good job of laying out some of the challenges. Uh, and, and but it still talks about structural complementarity, doesn't it? It, it does. I'm not sure. I think that's a very nice phrase. I'm a little bit less convinced that there are those complementarities. I should say I'm not an economist, but uh, I, I'm not, not sure that there are as many. The other problem, of course, that we've got here, uh, there's two, two, two other issues. One of them is that the trade is 
as it's developed, has, is very much in, in, in Australia's favour and not in India's. And it's, that's a big political problem in India. India looks at a whole number of different trading relationships and sees imbalance. Uh, with China, it's a huge imbalance and it's getting bigger and bigger every year. Uh, and the Indian politicians are, and the Indian population are not necessarily very happy about that. Um, so, so that's that that is a big issue for 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 both. And then this is the liberalisation problem. Shiva, can I ask you about your? I mean, do you agree with that assessment of the complementarity or lack thereof between the two economies? I I agree with the um, the outlook where India looks upon Australia as saying that there is such a big difference in the balance of trade that it is so much in favor of Australia, and how can we try and rectify that? But they also know that the traditional exports from India have essentially been TCF, textiles, clothing, and footwear. Um, and there's not really much else that has developed from the Indian side to Australia. Sure, uh, one of the things I was doing was importing granite, and that is expanding. But that is, again, under competition from granite that's coming out of, out of China. So there is very little in terms of um, uh, resources as such that India can do. Uh, and one of their ways is possibly trying to go into the services area mm -hmm. um, and trying to you know, export some of their services. And they did that with their back office operations. But then you know what happened here in terms of the, the public perception of outsourcing everything out to India. So that didn't progress um, very much. Uh, but I, I believe that the, uh, at least the people of India realize that they cannot have a positive balance of trade everywhere that they, they go with. It's working within whatever it is that they can do. However, going back to what I said about missed opportunities and leading again to what Ian was saying, it's that value-added component mm -hmm. that Australia does not seem to be making uh, progress with. Uh, for instance, agriculture. Yes, Australia exports wheat to India. Australia exports chickpeas to India. Australia exports dumpies to India. They, they, the whole situation where India is looking at self-sufficiency even in agricultural product, even in wheat, their storage facilities of wheat are terrible. They lose more um, to wastage than they can actually supply to people. And I've been to many of the, the storage facilities. They're just terrible. So that's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so it, it goes to that. And again, in the agricultural um, production change, uh, chain, sorry, um, the, in fruit, fruit and vegetables, almost 20% of Australia's fruit and vegetable production is lost due to wastage. They don't have proper coal storage, whereas we have got really good coal storage facilities, logistics chains, is excellent here. And that is where perhaps I was talking about maybe that connectivity not coming through, where we can actually sit with people on the other end and say, all right, this is what you want to do. How can we help you get there? So let's uh, explore that lack of, of connectivity in, in a bit more detail. But first, let's sort of start with a really obvious elephant in the room question. Adani. Ruth, I'm going to throw it to you. <laughs> the furor, for want of a better word, um, over the proposed Carmichael coal mine. Mm -hmm. Is that about India? Is that about uh, we don't want Indian money? Right. Or is that about coal and the environment? And so you're saying this from the Australia, in, in Australia, right? Well, from, in Australia, but yeah. from the way the Australians are 
approaching okay. it. So I would say that I have a strange perspective on this for not only working in, uh, spending a lot of time in India over the past 20 years, um, but also coming from Queensland um, and having uh, a family half full of coal miners. Um, and uh, so from the end, half full of coal miners and half full of environmental um, uh, uh, we have interesting Christmases, um, uh, 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 environmental activists. Um, so uh, considering that I have to have had to explain to a lot of my both sides of the family that Adani is actually Indian, um, uh, I don't think it's necessarily about India. And it's also an interesting... I, I, I do think that the attitude towards uh, India, Indian business, is, um, it has a different... A tone and a different, pre a different prejudice, uh, if you like, in Australia to what I've noticed, because I also have to keep an eye on the, um, the attitude towards China uh, and, um, uh, and uh, from, from working in Asian studies towards um, uh, Islam as well, right, Islam and Muslim immigration and, Muslim, uh, and both Chinese, and it's different. It's not, it's, there isn't a sense of we don't... Uh, it's not necessarily anti-Indian, it's anti-coal... Right. And the same people that are anti-coal are usually pro-yoga, right? This is what I've noticed, is that there's like a, a complementarity there. They don't necessarily see India as being... And they seem a bit confused by India as a coal miner, if that makes sense. The same way as you see people being confused of, of Norway as being a, 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 a place where, where people are going to drill for oil in the bite. You know, it's a... How does that work? India and uh, doesn't necessarily fit with that. So I don't think it's an, necessarily, in, from what I've observed, an anti-India perspective. And, and if you do get people talking about China, it's usually an anti-China investment, and this doesn't have the same uh, tone to it. Yeah. Which is an interesting question. I mean, you, you look at the, the statement from the Australian India Business Council, which says the Adani coal project is a bellwether project for more investment from India. If it doesn't go ahead because of political considerations, there'll be very likely implications for trade between the two nations. Shabir, how do you read that statement, and how is the situation with Adani being seen from an Indian point of view? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're I, not here, so I can't ask them, but I, <laughs> I, I think it's an important question. Overall, um, the perspective of Adani investing in, uh, in Australia for India is good news. It's good news that an Indian company is coming out and doing something in the mining industry here because India's been talking about it for ages and ages. The Steel Authority of India wanted to come and invest in coking coal mines. Uh, some of the electricity boards in India wanted to come here and, and buy uh, an Australian coal mine, and nothing happened. There were many, many delegations that came out talking about investing in Australian coal mines, but nothing happened. So here, finally, we have an Indian company that is willing to buy an Australian mining, uh, coal mining uh, organization or take one from uh, Greenfield's project. So I think overall they're very, very happy for it to go ahead. But is it a, a bellwether? If it doesn't go ahead, will it damage bilateral investment ties? From what I've experienced with trade with India, I don't think so. Um, I believe that the perception again about Australia is that it will be seen for its own worth, that it is not going to be seen as being anti-Indian, 
uh, it's going to be seen in terms of what Australian miners do, what the Australian government does, because there already are precedents in place for other mines, because there are heaps of mines between um, the Galilee Basin and the, uh, the water. Um, so they know how good Australian mining practices are. And from everything that I've spoken to about people in the mining industry in India, they're just saying if this doesn't go ahead, well, and as long as the reason for, for it not going ahead is put out there and is validated, I don't think it's going to affect. Ian, you're, you're nodding your head. Yeah, I mean, I'm nodding my head because I think if we were talking, having this conversation five years ago, um, just at the beginning of the, the Modi government, given Modi's personal connections with Gautam Adani, the family, the Adani family, with the company and so on, I would have said, and I know there was a lot of anxiety around the idea that if this wasn't quickly approved, that it was going to have some ramifications for the rest of the relationship. I'm not so convinced that that's the case now. I think partly because the, the view on the Indian side has become more realistic about the prospects for the mine uh, and in terms of government approvals, in terms of financing and so on. Um, I think also there's been a kind of move away, a little bit of a move away from Modi himself has kind of disentangled himself a little bit from some of the, the business, the big business interests that were very closely identified with him in Gujarat and then in pretty much the first year or so of his, of his time in government. Many of those foreign trips when, when uh, Modi was gadding about, as a friend of mine says, uh, in the first 20, 12 months, 18 months of his prime ministership, he was travelling with Adani, Gautam Adani himself, and, and there were other business magnates on, the, on those planes. That's no longer the case. Modi's pivoted away towards a different kind of agenda. So I think, the, you know, if the project goes ahead, I think it would probably sig some, signal some good things, but I think if it doesn't go ahead, the damage now, in a way it's already been done and we're, we're now into a different kind of phase. And there's obviously no question that, that Adani and the Carmichael, Carmichael mine is as much a political issue as an environmental issue now, certainly in this country. And as we said, both countries going to the polls in the next couple of months. Ian, how do you see the elections affecting the bilateral relationship? Well, I mean, we know... Uh, I mean, Adani aside, I mean, I think the, the, the Labour Party's position on Adani is, is now fairly fairly clear. Are we talking the state position or the federal position? Both. <laughs> so, I mean, in, in Queensland, essentially, this, the Adani controversy, to some degree, kept the Labour Party in power last time round because it allowed the Greens... It, Greens' preferences flowed to Labour and against the LNP, as we have in Queensland. So the so Labour parties kind of should be grateful that some of the controversy actually was good for them. I think two years ago we would have been worrying about you know, a trade-off within the ALP between, you know, inner-city Melbourne seats, which are kind of green, but we can try and wrestle them off if we're sufficiently green, and thinking from an ALP perspective. Um, but now, now I think that the issue is pretty much settled. Uh, and so the, the concerns around an ALP government coming in, in in May, if that is what happens, are, are a little bit different now in New Delhi than they were. So rather than just being about some of these economic issues, they're about, a big, around some of the big strategic questions. So how is the ALP going to manage China? Uh, how are the various different interests and factions within the Labour Party going to work themselves out on China? Um, but what is the, the implication there that India sees the ALP as too close to China? Which is hard, 
case to make yeah. right now. Look, I mean, in, in, Indians, rightly, I think, I used to be a historian, have longer memories than Australians. <laughs> they remember Stephen Smith going out and announcing the end of the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, uh, with his Chinese counterpart standing next to him, uh, and without any prior warning to New Delhi. So there's a little bit of scepticism there about, about how the ALP might manage the relationship with, with China. Um, and that said, the difference between 2008, when that was done, and now, in terms of Indian understanding of what goes on in Australian politics, uh, of all the various different factions and everything else, is, is immensely better. Uh, there are scholars, there are diplomats who understand Australia extremely well, probably better than we understand what goes on in New Delhi. Shabir, what about looking at it from the other side, I suppose, the Indian election? Are we expecting any uh, significant changes in India that could impact on the bilateral relationship? Um, there's still an ongoing debate about that, um, uh, Ali, because um, I just came back from India about a month ago, and uh, the, the fever for the elections is already heating up, and uh, people are talking about the elections and talking about what might happen and what might not happen. Um, there are... Um, I seem to get the general feeling that Modi is doing his homework very well, which he did even in the last elections. He's being able to gather his, his forces together and uh, make a good pitch for coming back in. But at the same time, on the, the minority side, um, there seems to be um, a, a movement, a very focused movement, and one of the movements that I've been, people that I've been talking to about is called um, No Voter Left Behind. Uh, and what they are doing is going out to all the constituencies that are marginal in terms of their voting and on-ground discussions with people to tell them to go and vote. Not telling them how to vote or who to vote for, but just saying, look, this is a critical time where every Indian needs to come up and be heard. So go up and vote for whatever it is. Now, how much they're going to be successful, what is going to happen, needs to be seen. But overall, I, I still think that the relations between India and Australia are very sound, irrespective of what happened in 1998. And by the way, 1998 was when I was sent to India as Consul General. <laughs> so I took it on my chin, and it still hurts when I talk about it. Um, in spite of that, in spite of the, um, the Harbhajan Singh episode, um, in spite of all these little dips, it's been very robust. Mm. Would, would you agree with that, Ruth? I mean, how, do, you, do you see any, uh, any significant change in the relationship post-election? It depends who wins what, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know. The, well, that, of course, is the big question. Yeah, so, it doesn't so, stop us hypothesising. No, because it seems... Um, <laughs> it, 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 I was in India recently and, and there was... Uh, um, there's a lot of people that are convinced Modi's going to win and then other people... Um, the, the way that they explained it was people keep saying Modi or whom mm. and then the other people were saying it does, uh, India can operate without an other uh, so, so that it doesn't have to be another Modi to compete with him so you can end up with a... a, a um, a coalition of all different forces and then uh, a lot of kind of uh, trading and then someone that you don't know may end up being Prime Minister, right? So it, 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 the two sides, one of them is quite a, a, a cohesive force from the BJP side, from the Modi side, um, but the other side is so various and so multifaceted and they're so, it's so um, complicated that you could end up with anyone. 
uh, right? So well, not quite anyone, um, but there's a there's a whole you know there's, it could be anything from a um, it, from a local representative that's put forward from a local uh, a political party to um, one of the people from Congress. So it, it's complicated. Um, but if if Modi won and then the Labour Party won, I can see the tensions that you're talking about. The because the the discourse about China in India is a bit nuts. Right, it's 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 more exaggerated than most of the things that you hear in Australia. Um, so, along what lines? Um, that uh, anything that anything that happens in India, usually you can find something in China to blame for it. Right, and not just in terms of trade imbalances, but there's a lot of um, uh, security issues that uh, that, that uh, um, India seems very worried about. Which I mean, it's understandable. China is up in the hills and uh, is much more powerful um, in the northeast where I've been working. Uh, there's a lot of um, worry from the Indian state that the, there's people within that area that are going to side with China and trying to uh, undermine the Indian state there. So there's a lot of security uh, issues that, it, but the, none of this is discussed in a very rational way, it seems to me, or a very informed way. And so I'm interested that you're saying that uh, that India knows more about Australia that, because that most of the discourse, most of the conversations they have about China. Are, are really uninformed. And Ian, you made the point that, that China has been one of the, the impetuses for that closer security relationship. Yes, that's that right. That we have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the initial relationships, it, it starts to improve around counterterrorism mm. and so on. But a lot of the, like these processes generally do, once you start engaging and get agencies talking to each other, it tends to kind of branch out into other areas. So by the time you get to the mid-2000s, the, the conversation is, is about China uh, and about the, it, it, the various different impacts, both positive and negative on the region, um, economic, strategic, security and so on. Um, what we've seen over the, you know, in the early months of Modi's time in office, he made a big, he shifted Indian policy, foreign policy quite significantly. He embraced the so-called strategic partners, Japan, Vietnam, uh, Singapore, us, the United States, uh, even South Korea and so on. Um, and he started using the similar kinds of language. So Modi start, the Modi government starts talking about a rules-based order and so on. Mm. It adds words in, like inclusive and open and things like this, to give it a kind of particular sort of Indian spin. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it starts talking the same kind of language. So it very much aligns uh, India with those, those, those states which are equally concerned about the impact that China's having on the region. And, and it's very timely that just, uh, well, in fact, right now, We've got the Indo-Pacific Endeavor 2019, which for the the, um, the military boffins, IPE 19. Um, but this is, you know, our defence minister has said that this is, not sure which one, we've had a few lately, but um, says that the breadth and the depth of the bilateral relationship with India is what's going to be on show this year. So we have that on the one hand, but on the other, we've been trying to get into those Malabar exercises for quite a while. Uh, they're the exercises that India has with America and Japan, and Delhi keeps saying no. Yes. So, What's so, going on there? Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah, an exercise Malabar was a bilateral uh, exercise that was conducted between the Indians and the, and the Americans, running back into the, I think into the early two thousands, not before that. And they had the Japanese in 
and Australia was invited in the year that Australia also was involved in the quadrilateral security dialogue, which is just an officials meeting uh, which occurred in 2007. So same year, there's a quadrilateral naval exercise. And then, of course, Australia pulls out of the, of the quad and I India has henceforth refused to allow Australia to participate again, <coughs> even though it's allowed other countries to come in as well. So we've seen Vietnam and various... They have long come. memories, as you said. They have long memories. Now... Um, I, you know, I'm on record as saying I don't, I don't actually think this is a huge deal, but every year the Australian Navy asks and every year India says no. Aww. And every year <laughs> journalists write it up <laughs> as being a big snub, which I'm not sure it really is. Um, but it is a bit of signalling and it is, it is actually, to my mind, I think, and this is my personal view, I think it is New Delhi saying, look, we remember what mm. you did last time round and you're going to still have to be on your best behaviour for a little bit longer before we're going to allow you to, to, to play again. That said, this naval exercise is not big. It's not that important. It's nowhere near the kinds of... It's symbolic that, more it's than anything. It, mm. it, in some cases, it's involved six ships. Well, <laughs> that's obviously not many in the, in no. the scheme of things. Shabir, what no. do you think? I mean, how do you read this... Uh, almost split between security uh, versus economic, because we do have this strong security relationship, uh, much less faltering than on the economic front. Do you see it as driven by China? What, how do you see it? It's Yes, I think it is driven by China, as um, Ian said. That's brought a whole lot of focus onto the, the security issue. And there's no doubt that India is worried about what China is doing around the area, China, its linkages with Pakistan, mm. with Sri Lanka, and I guess even more importantly what China is doing in Africa, because India is now looking at Africa as being um, some a place that they can link with in terms of helping them and even getting product out of, um, out of Africa. Their relationships and their business investments in Mozambique and South Africa have, have been growing. But they see China around there, and they see what China is doing, particularly in the mining uh, industry in, in Africa. So relating to all of these, yes, security is a major concern uh, for India. But how, how it impacts on um, economic relations, bringing it back down to economic relationships with, uh, with Australia... Um, I'm not sure if it has a... Well, I was wondering whether maybe the closer we get on a security and, and, and political or, or diplomatic front, the more we can see an opportunity, the more we understand each other, the less missed opportunities there might be. Or is that just being too optimistic? Well, on the, on the diplomatic and the political side, I don't think there are any problems. Yeah, sure, they might come up and say certain things, but um, I... And that's, again, a part of my statement about lack of connectivity. There really is no Australian politician that I know of that can pick up this phone and speak to his or her counterpart in India. Um, it, it used to exist a long time ago, but it doesn't happen any, any so, time So now. why is that? And that's not to do with a party, is it? That's more... I mean, what, what's changed? Yeah, it, I don't think it has anything to do with, uh, with parties. It probably has something to do with Australian priorities. Uh, they would do it with the U.S., they would do it with the U.K., they would do it even with Canada, even with China, but somehow it doesn't seem to be happening that way with, um, with India. Uh, and like Ian said, um, yeah, India has a long memory, and they will remember this. They will remember the fact that um, you know, there has been no major contact. Even when, um, going back to when 
uh, where was it? John Howard, I think, was flying over Delhi and he said he dropped by for a day because he was just, do you remember that? Name? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, he said he was transiting over mm. and he said he dropped by for a day. And so he, he wasn't actually making an entire no. visit. He was no. just no. sort of popping right. in. And as the optics of that are terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So that didn't go down too well to say, hey, are we just a, a via point or yeah. are we actually a destination for you guys to come into? Um, so on the political side, yes, there needs work to be done. And if I may bring that point in here, I don't know how good the Australian political scene is in how good they are in engaging with the Indians here to help build that. Um, I was lucky. I I went there representing Australia, which I think was, was good for both sides. Um, I don't know if it was good for me, but it was good <laughs> for both sides. Um, I think there's got to be a bit of that happening too, Ali. But it, that's the, the political relationship. What about the... Um uh, the connectivity on a business front, you know, is there, uh, why isn't there more uh, connections, more business connections? How does the diaspora fit into that? And I think of, I recently met the head of uh, Riverina Biofuels, and when that was built in Wagga 10 years ago, biggest Indian greenfields project in Australia ever, meant to be a massive impetus for investment, and nothing's happened. I mean, they're going great guns, but you know, there's been no follow-through. So why the lack of connectivity on the business front? Again, with that Riverina, um, it was driven by Didi. Um, Who's the I, CEO. Yeah. And if Didi had not done it, it would not have happened. And I, that reinforces what I'm talking about, the Indian diaspora linkages. Um, in, in terms, however, on the broader connectivity side, even in my stay in in India as Trade Commissioner and the, the Council General. Uh, when a lot of the Australian businesses would come looking for clients, looking for partners. Um, because they spoke English, so it's yes. easy. It, um, I, I can't find another word, so I'll, I'll use this word. It was almost like a, a patronizing, mm -hmm. you know, you guys need us. Mm -hmm. You know, we are so good at doing all these things. Why, I, why aren't you doing business with us? Because we're so good at doing all of this. Um, and maybe that needs to be looked at. Um, it, it never was, uh, you know, a collaborative approach. Um, not the way that I would like to see it. Not the way that I have developed my business linkages by saying, uh, you know, we're not competing, we're collaborating. Um, so perhaps that needs to be looked at. And, and do you agree that, that we've approached India not just missed opportunities, but we've just taken a, a wrong approach. I think there's kind of, it's right that there is, at the same time as there's an assumption that it's easy because people speak English, there's an assumption that it's also difficult because there's, you know, there's bureaucracy and there's, it's complicated. And, they don't and, and also, unlike China, which is one China, that's India right. is many, many Indias. That's right. And, and so, and oddly, there's no kind of understanding that, that you know, India has a federal system like like Australia does, and it's very like Australia's. Uh, and so, you know, and different states have different different development priorities. They have different economic policies. They have different approaches. And some states are very welcoming of of uh, of, of of investors and have tried to set up these kinds of one window. This is one of Modi's initiatives, which he borrowed from somebody else, as many of them want, as he does quite frequently. Uh, and so the sort of one window approach where you can come in, you can get all your approvals all lined up. You know. So there are, you know, I think part of the problem is just it's, it's too easy, but it's too hard all at the same time. 
Um, the other problem that I find, I think, is just is it's a long-term question. It's about building relationships that last for a long period of time. We are, Australians are very transactional. Uh, they're very kind of, oh, well, we'll do this. But we've got lots of opportunities. We're very spoiled. Uh, having an entire region to sell to, lots of different partners that are willing to play ball, uh, open markets that have been sustained over a long period of time that don't require the kinds of long-term relationship building that, that perhaps uh, would be involved with India. So there's a whole range of different factors, I think, that. Ruth, when you, you're working on the ground, do you, do you get that sense, I mean, particularly the need for the long-term yeah. partnership building? Uh, long-term partnership building and this combination of thinking that India is both easy and too hard, I think it's just really nailed it. But also I'd say for security as well as for government-to-government -government, uh, connections, business connections, education connections as well. There's this idea it's a, that having Indian students in sometimes is too hard in, and too easy at the same time. We expect you to be able to speak English and we're not going to give you help all the, all the way through. Um, and uh, uh, on the ground, it's a, it, it, it ends up being this real... And I'm actually a bit... I'm actually concerned if we leave it to the um, diaspora uh, that we're creating a, a, a kind of a false uh, connection you know, between Australia and in India. It's as Australian as a whole, and if, if it wants to connect with India, needs to make a better effort. So I'm thinking about this in terms of the way that we've interacted with China and we have so many specialists and we have so much education and everything and we just, in the more mainstream of Australia, ignore India and represent it as being one of the stereotypes which, of being too hard or too easy. Um, and I don't know which C that is, curry, cricket or whatever. Um, but it's a, it, it, it means that there's like a, a, either people go there with this idea, um, I'll just go and make a transactional uh, have a transaction and then I'll get my money and leave, right? Or they go there and they won't leave the hotel because it's too hard, right? So, the, so there's this uh, lack of really wanting to engage with the area and its complexities. But the thing is, and that's what I was thinking about, what we can get from India, as what, we can, what India can teach us, right? That idea of diversity, the idea of uh, uh, multiplicity of cultural uh, uh, spheres interacting with each other, um, the, the, the diversity of India and being able to appreciate and, uh, and the way that that's cultivated, if we can have some access to that, we could learn heaps. Uh, and and, could, and it, it could be something that we go to India with an idea of we need to learn from you as opposed to here's what we know. Mm. Because the other thing is long histories isn't just 1990s. It's the fact that we're a member, like they said, the Commonwealth is something that's going to connect us. Really? Like we're Britishers. You know, we're, we're the, um, we were the, the people that, uh, that won from the empire. Um, so if it, I think that's part of it is this idea we're, we're more developed. We've got this. This is what we can show you. But when actually... Uh, there's a lot we could learn from India in so many ways. Mm. I'm going to open this up to questions on the floor. Mm. I, just one more quick question for Shabir. I wonder, you know, is it fair to say that China in many ways has sucked the oxygen out of the India discussion in this country? I mean, how different would the relationship be if we didn't have... China. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard yes. to imagine. But... Yes. Oh, blame China for everything. <laughs> yeah, <why not? laughs> but I uh, no, I think again that's a good point because yes, I would have thought that if Australia did not have um, all this engagement with China, that India would be on a different footing with Australia. Let's open this up for questions from the floor. We've got a roving microphone. We've got one down the front here. Um, just, just here. 
front. front. Thank you all the panelists for your wonderful talk. Uh, my name is Suki, and my question is to Professor Einhall. As you mentioned about uh, liberalization, privatization, and globalization, which happened in India in 1991, and it was not implemented well, which I completely agree with you. And I'll tell you why it was not implemented. Because when there is a government in power, and this government is trying to pass a bill in the parliament, the opposition will not let it work. So the end of the day, businesses will suffer, and poor people will suffer. This was happening. And what I feel the politics when I see in both the countries, Australia and India, for example, Fraser Anning making a comment about Muslims in Australia, the same politician in India will come and ban Muslims in India and mm. send them to Pakistan. So such politicians are basically dividing and not uniting. So what I'm trying to ask here is like this, both these two countries, do they need politicians like Jacinda Ardern who is uniting <laughs> and not like just dividing for a better relation between Australia and I'm India? I'm not sure anyone needs a Fraser Anning really. But... <laughs> Ian, do you want to take that? Oh, look, I think that, look, we could, I think we could all do with a, a Jacinda Ardern. Um, although, you know, we have a, we have an Anastasia Palaszczuk, and she's pretty, she's not, not done a bad job in Queensland. Um, I think, I mean, the, the, the point that I was trying to make, I think, about liberalisation is that one of the one of the uh, great hopes that was raised when Modi came into, into power in 2014 by the Western commentators who didn't quite know the BJP, the party that he's head of, didn't really understand their economic platform, was that we would see kind of a further push for liberalisation. But the mistake was that while the BJP is quite pro-business in some areas, it's actually quite sceptical about liberalisation for, for partly for economic reasons, but also for sort of cultural reasons. As, as cultural nationalists, they fear that economic liberalisation may bring westernisation in, in cultural terms. And uh, and so there are big segments of the BJP that are against that. So I think, and, and what we saw when Modi came to power too, was a great hope that we would see bilateral trade deals, one with Australia. The New Zealanders wanted one. Uh, a whole bunch of countries were, were kind of looking to, to see that these, these were going to be concluded, and that didn't happen. And that has been a disappointment. But in a way, you know, we shouldn't have been disappointed because we should, actually should have known better. Mm. <laughs> Shabir, do you want to comment on that at all? Yes, uh, especially now, I think it's a major issue in India, especially with the um, elections coming up. Uh, and there possibly, possibly could be a change, like Ruth was saying, we don't know. Anything could happen. Uh, if Modi doesn't come in, who's going to come in? Uh, we don't know that. There's a whole lot of options open. Mm -hmm. But I, I um, that... The message of, um, like you were talking about, the uh, divisiveness that's coming in is definitely not good. And um, like I was saying, I just came back in February. And for the last couple of years, I have been very unsettled when I went to India because I can sense fear, fear on the street that I've never, ever experienced before. Because no matter what, you walk on the street, people are happy, you know, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, no matter what it is, everybody mixes around. But in the last couple of years, I've actually sensed that on the street, that people are afraid. And that's not a good thing for any country. Because others have been given licence. Correct. May I just make one other thing, point on that? Um, I, I mean, you, I, I should have come back to that, that point. You'll have seen in the last 24 hours that Modi and his, and his allies, have all his ministers, have all restyled themselves as, as Chowki does, as watchmen. And they're saying, you know, we're the watchmen, the guys who sit outside on a plastic chair and look after your apartment building. You know, we're styling themselves as watchmen because we're, we're looking out for the people here. And that is a play about national security and saying we're going to keep you safe 
from those threats out there. And that language, that whole narrative is really troubling. But it's one more troubling thing on top of so many other things that have happened over the last five years. Because I haven't seen fear, I've seen anger. I mean, fear as well, yes, but the over, overwhelming um, emotion on the streets in some of the places that we went to is anger. At inequality? At, a... uh, at, at, at a, well, the, the main thing that we were, I was seeing anger at it was the Modi citizenship bill in uh, Bengal <coughs> and, and the northeast because um, he had an idea of um, uh, people who came in who were not Muslim could have uh, citizenship and there's uh, large amounts of immigration to the, to the northeast and to Bengal um, of, from uh, Hindus and Buddhists from Bangladesh. Um, and there was a lot of resentment towards his towards Hindu nationalism in those areas, and then uh, in other places the minorities were fearful. And then there's also a uh, uh, it was yeah, very divided. Everything was coming down to di- division and and, uh, and arguments, which there's echoes of here. Fra- I mean, Fraser Anning is the most disgusting version of it. We've had the same. We're having, we're well, having... increasingly in the wake of Christchurch, yeah. we are really having that conversation Yeah, we're definitely right now. having that conversation. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think... Well, it's not, Modi's not having that conversation. No. <laughs> no. Modi's participating in another way. Yeah. Okay, so you know, I'll, just, I'll just move on. We've got a question uh, down the back in the white shirt and then uh, Penny... My name is Ravi Raghupati. i just been to India last one month. What I feel that the big corporate companies like Ambani, Adani, they are only growing nowadays in a Modi terms. And medium and small business, they are almost killed. And the people have really fear. They want to move the better future and endless opportunity, which is Australia which is now there is three investors, they are lining up with me to join us a joint venture with me, with IT and infrastructure and uh, 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 residential home building in Australia, which is Labour government now announcing recently that we build 250 homes for affordable living for the first home buyers. And these are all the avenues. There is a very good... Uh, opportunity in Australia to attract the investment from India, especially the current... So are you talking about... What's the question specifically? The question is, uh, there are people want to interest to invest money here in Australia in mining and any business. So there are... But I think that you would agree with that point, Shabir, wouldn't you? That there are people who would be very keen to invest. Always opportunities in Australia too. Is it... Australia may look out and think it's complicated or easy and hard. Do Indians look in and think it's complicated? I, I think they do. Um, it's the it's a bit of the it's a bit different, but it's the same in both ways. Uh, for Indian companies to understand the way Australia operates uh, is something that they have to come to grips with and come to understand. Because the way things operate here are not the way things operate there, mm. which, is, which works negatively in both ways. Mm. But um, I think it's wonderful that we've got uh, these companies looking at uh, uh, investment in uh, property development. And I think that is another big area here. Uh, property development is happening. Uh, I know of many Indian origin Australians that are actually doing small-scale developments. 
Um, so the construction industry is something they're very familiar with. Um, and I think for these companies to tie up with somebody locally and to be able to do it, I think I don't see any problems in them doing it. Um, we've got a question here from Penny Birch, who's the group CEO of AsiaLink. Um, thank you. I think this has been a really fascinating conversation. And um, I guess my question really feeds very much off the last question about Indian perceptions of Australia, um, Ali. And um, the Indian government has decided to do an Australia economic strategy as a counterpart to Peter Varghese's India economic strategy. I was just wondering if I could ask the panellists, what do you think are going to be the highest priorities for India in developing that strategy? And how should we be, as Australia, responding, and particularly in terms of the point that Shabir has just made, are there issues around our business climate and the ease of doing business for, you know, for people wanting to engage from India that we need to look at. So the question is, where are, where are the priorities the other way around? Where should they be? And then do we need to adjust our own, you know, regulatory regime, our investment regime, and the way that, that we do business to enable... No, that engagement to happen both ways. So, Shabir, if you were writing that 400-page India-Australia <laughs> uh, economic strategy to 2035, what would you put in it? Great. Wonderful question, Penny. Thank you for that. Um, look, the two areas that jump up, and which is what a lot of people, uh, when I visit and talk to them, uh, come up with is food security. Um, and India is trying to obtain... Uh, or attain self-sufficiency in food production, and that's going to be a hard task. <coughs> Sorry. Because their traditional methods of the way that they've um, subsidized the use of fertilizer mm -hmm. is actually killing their own uh, agricultural growing of produce. And already, like I have said, um, Australia is exporting chickpeas and peas and lentils and wheat. So again, they are aware of the good quality, the good work practices in food production in Australia. I understand we're even exporting blueberries to uh, India now. <laughs> um, so they're aware of that. And they would, I know that people have been looking at it, people have been talking about it. How can we link our food security with Australia? How can we rely on Australia to be able to supply us with the food grains that we are lacking? Not only that, but then for Australia to help us improve our own growing practices so that we might be able to reach self-sufficiency down the path. Um, that, I think, is, a, is quite a, a significant area that they would be looking at. Education, I think we've spoken about it. We've uh, done a lot about it. And strangely enough, again, mining. Um, India looks on Australia as a resource-rich country. And what they want is to be able to get some of those um, resources that will then help them um, to develop their own industries. Now, we haven't spoken about coking coal. Um, coking coal, India can only get coking coal from Australia. They have no choice because there is nowhere else in the world that they can get the kind of coking coal they need. And again, as you all know, the whole steel industry mm. in India is going through the roof. Yeah. Uh, their annual consumption of steel has gone up by about five times. 
So when we are supplying the coking coal, what else are we doing to help them in their steel production, to improve their steel production practices? Um, there are a lot of, uh, I think there are about five steel producing companies that are, uh, what do you call them? Um, they're not doing well, so the government is looking at taking them over, going under the disinvestment policies, yeah. all of that. Yeah. I mean, what, and I know we can do it. We, we have the wherewithal to be able to go out and help yeah. them do it. Yeah. Would there be anything in the India report that you, you would put in about Australia? That, that's about Australia doing more and offering more. Anything about Australia's internal processes here that we need to change to attract investment? Yes, I would. Um, I think this is being done by the CII, the Confederation of uh, Indian Industry. Um, one of the major ground facts of doing business with with Australia is that the way we, we approach things here, we, um, and again, going back to what Ian and Ruth were talking about, the, the transactional phase, um, we're a bit lazy. We, we want to finish a deal quickly and go home and, or go to the pub and have a beer or go home and play golf or whatever <laughs> it is. Um, we, we don't want to put the resources into it that is going to see it go over a long period of time. Whereas with India, it's, it starts with building that relationship, it starts with building the trust, and then negotiating. Knowing that you, you may not be able to give me what I want, I may not be able to give you what you want, let's sit down and talk about it, where is there a meeting point? Uh, and again, to put it very simply, the Australians come up and say, look, it's $35 a ton, this is our deal, take it or leave it. <laughs> I guess simpler than that. Ian, what would you put in an India... Strategy think, for Australia. You know, I think you know Australia is relatively open, even with the, the tightening up that we've seen with foreign investment review boards and so on. Uh, it's still a, very, a pretty open uh, country in terms of foreign investment flowing into the country, and so I think there's unquestionably a need for just educating those Indian businesses that come here, but just because they might come off the plane and speak English doesn't mean to say they understand how business is done done here. We don't do enough in tourism in that area. We don't do enough in a whole range of things. And it's troubling and disconcerting. I mean, I know people who've come from, from India, come to Australia and, and found, you know, that there are things provided for Japanese tourists or Chinese mm. tourists or Japanese, Japanese business people or Chinese business people, but not equivalents for Indians. And there is that assumption that, that, they, that, um, that they'll just understand. On the report itself, I mean, my, my worry is that it will focus on the balance of trade question uh, and how to rebalance that. Uh, and it's not just about trade, it is also about in investment. And one of the things that often gets noticed is that Indian investment into Australia is the same value as Australian investment out. And yet Australia has gigantic amounts of capital locked up in superannuation funds and so on, billions and billions and billions of dollars which all flows to the United States and so to other places other than to our region. It's not just an India thing, it's a regional issue. How do we lock up, how do we get that capital, mobilise it, and put it into riskier markets? And then I think, and then alongside that, there are other worries I have too. The diaspora here is doing a fantastic job for, them, for themselves, for the community, for everything else. Uh, and they've come in and they've planted themselves and they're doing this fantastic job and from almost nothing. You know, 10, 15 years ago, the diaspora was much smaller than it is today. But what they, what's happening is that capital is flowing out of India. So private capital is coming out. 
uh, to fund people's educations, to uh, buy apartments, to set up businesses, uh, and so on. And so alongside a brain drain, we're also seeing a capital drain out of India. And that's, that's, that weakens India. It has to. When you've got your best and brightest leaving, but also the money following them too, that weakens India. And I think there has to be. I, if I was in New Delhi, I'd be saying, what are you going to do about that? Ruth, what would you put in it? Um, so, I have ideas. Um, uh, uh, India needs food security. In order to have food security, it needs water security. Um, and because uh, the groundwater is dropping down by, you know, half a metre, it's, it's, um, in some places it's down to almost um, 60 metres and, and there's real problems. And Australia it also has water problems. Right. So there is actually there could be an exchange of uh, of uh, technologies um, and uh, figure out some way to because because this comes back to this idea of transactional. If you go to India, you want to make money out of India, or you want someone to come here to make money out of India, it happens once. If you build relationships, uh, then they, you can have ongoing things that can help India to grow. India grows whoever's doing business in India or, or the Indian people investing in Australia, they all grow together, right? So if there is some kind of uh, social responsibility embedded in uh, the uh, Australian interactions with India, and I actually think this idea of um, a, a, a having a cultural explanation to Indians is part of uh, a, a social responsibility. It's uh, not assuming that everyone understands mm. things in the same way. That too many assumptions made. So yeah. many assumptions, yeah, and uh, so many assumptions made in both ways. Uh, so to find ways for Australian uh, to have the Indian approach to Australia so that uh, Australian technology can help India grow and that in the end would help Australia. Mm. And be sustainable. I think you should all be employed and <laughs> get a job writing this strategy. My Liz Blake, my... Um, my question is is towards uh, directed to Shabir, Shabir and possibly um, Ruth Gamble. I'm not sure, but I was very surprised to hear when you said I was kind of delighted, but I was also really surprised when you mentioned the lack of value add. And I, I was delighted that you mentioned it, but I was mm-hmm. really surprised that at that meta level or micro level that that that's not being thought of. And I just I'm shocked at that actually. That um, that the uh, whoops that 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 is not the approach that Australia is doing is is taking with business in India, and my question, I guess, is well, what is the what would be the pathway forward? You, you know, what what is? I mean, you've touched on a couple of things, but but you know, there must be some concrete steps and some general steps. Um, because business is not transactional. To embrace that I just value add opportunity. Yeah. yeah, to embrace that and to develop that value add. I just think there's incredible social responsibility. There's a tremendous possible. And I don't know, you know, am I just... Um, I, I do understand that things are probably very difficult over there. And then, you know, I could be thinking, oh, it's too easy. <laughs> but there has to be answers. Mm. There has to, to be, be a pathway. A- Let's ask Shabir, what, what is a, a way forward, do you think, on that value-add equation? Okay. And, and traditionally, uh, Australia's... It's not the first time that we've been accused of yeah, not value-adding. Value yeah. yeah. um, again, I go back to what um, Ian had uh, mentioned as well about the um, structural uh, compatibility. Now, here, a lot of the private companies develop their own infrastructure. 
for uh, preserving food, for transportation of food, for timely deliveries of fruit and vegetables. Uh, all of that is pretty well done here. Uh, largely driven by the private sector. However, in India, you have what's called the um, APMC, the Agricultural Produce Marketing Corporation, which is a federal body who are um, responsible for organizing what they call mandis. Mandis are the little regional uh, fruit and vegetable collection centers where the farmers will put all their veggies and the fruit onto a little truck, hook up the tractor to the little um, pick up and, and drive it into the Monday. And from there on, the AMC takes it over, APMC takes it over. And there, there is where the gap is. So it, you know, to me, it seems a bit um, not very understandable as to why nobody has approached the APMC to say, guys, is there some way that we can help you build all this uh, So the path forward supplies. is actually not that hard. Find the opportunity, approach the right person... Approaching and, and the right person, that, that I think is where we seem to not be able to do it. Because again, uh, there's so many variations to it, there's so many different parties to it that we often get lost and then we say this is too difficult. Yeah, and that goes back to that, uh, that point a lot earlier, that, uh, that India is not one country. I mean, one of the things about China is you, you're dealing with one China. Ruth, do you want to add? Yes, and again, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record. You could value add social responsibility into that, into those processes, uh, adding in uh, pack packaging because India has massive problems with waste disposal. Uh, if there was ways to get biodegradable packaging and as well as refrigeration and and bring technologies into that process, it would have uh, again f uh, be able to be more sustainable in terms of the relationship as well as in, in terms uh, for the impact on the people there. Can I add to that, um, Ali? Yeah. Um, a friend of mine in um, Nasik, just out of Mumbai, um, has been exporting table grapes to the U UK for um, at least the last decade. And he, he started the hard way. He uh, had to compete with a whole lot of other, even European producers of table grapes in order to be able to sell. But he did it and he maintained it. When I met him two years ago, um, I said, Nitin, so how's this going? He said, look, it's, it's going wonderful. We don't talk about prices anymore. Um, they ask, they give us the query, we send them the quote, we send them this, the supply dates, and they say, yeah, just do it. But the conversation now goes around social responsibility, mm -hmm. because the UK buyers have come and seen his um, facility and what he's doing, and his own corporate social responsibility in making sure that the growers get uh, proper clothing when they are spraying, that their children go to school, yeah. that their houses are proper structures. So the buyers are now saying, hey, Nathan, you know what? How can we help you do all of this? Let's help you build the school. Let's help you educate the children. And out of it, I mean, I'm curious, are the buyers big multinationals? Are they social benefit companies? Are they benefit corporations? Are they... No, they're just importers of, of grapes. Mm -hmm. And they have, you know, hooked into what Nitin is trying to do in his local area. And that's the perfect relationship. Because he then gets a committed supply of grapes. So when he looks after his growers, yeah. the growers don't go to anybody else. So he wants to make sure that the growers are happy with him. And he's doing all these things to make them happy. Mm. Social responsibility is a good way to make business interactions non-transactional, mm. or more than transactional. Mm. Um, and 
question here. Just take the lady in the colour throat and then I'll go back to the gentleman. I wanted to introduce a fourth C to the conversation and that's corruption, <laughs> which, as we know, is a strong feature of business practices in India and I would suggest somewhat of a hidden business practice in Australia <laughs> in different ways. So perhaps that's another C that we can share and learn from each other on how to control. Mm. So I'm Ian, interested in your response to that. Yes, no, indeed. And as you're laughing, Ian, I'm going to go to oh, you. I, mean, I thought you were going to pick on me because I come from Queensland. Um, <laughs> um, yes, you should know more, better than most. <laughs> I think... Yes, I mean corruption's a you know corruption is a is a is a chronic problem, uh, and you know and 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 where do you and and there are similarities between the two countries in terms of you know where do you make serious money? If you want to make serious money in Australia or in in India, you make it in real estate, uh, and that's where you can move. You can launder lots of money if you want to. You can you can generate enormous amounts of money. If you want to, you can hide a lot of money if you want to. Uh, and we see that in, in both countries. And there's, there is a commonality there too, so I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right endorsing your, your, your fourth C. Um, the, what you do about that and how you handle that, I think, is a little bit more tricky. Australia has been way behind, I think, on in terms of federal anti-corruption bodies at the political level. There are states that I think are significantly worse than Queensland on this, and there's one just to the south of us that has significant problems with corruption, I would argue, in real estate and so on. Uh, but You, you mean know, south of Queensland or south of where you are now? South of Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, yeah. is, south really? really? is the yeah. answer, though, the same as it is in any country that has a problem with corruption, isn't the answer, know your customer, know your client? And that means really know, which goes back to the not transactional business, it goes back to building the relationship. So you know who you're dealing with. I think so, but it also goes to having robust authorities capable of, of tackling these kinds of problems. Uh, one of the problems that we've seen in India under the, the current government is arguably some pressure put onto the federal investigation agencies. There's been uh, in various different different ways. But you know, anti anti corruption was a key platform for for Modi, and he you know he's made he's engaged in measures like demonetization, like pulling currency notes out of circulation, ostensibly to deal with corruption. But corruption is still a very significant problem. Um, there are lessons to be learned, government to government, uh, in, in how, talking about how to identify these problems, how to deal with these problems, and so on. And in terms of you know anti-corruption research, um, we actually, there are some of the best experts in the world in Australia. It just hasn't translated into policy, particularly mm. in Canberra. So, Shabir, how, I mean, what sort of advice did you used to give to businesses on a, not so much on the policy and regulatory level, but on a more practical level? Um, look, I think the fact that Australia is very, very clear on its anti-corruption uh, policy and laws sends the message out very loud and clear. I mean, the fact that Securency was um, prosecuted for being for offering um, bribes to India, uh, that sent a very strong message across. Uh, again, you know, corruption, uh, business facilitation. Do you reckon that's a fine line, do you? Yes, I think it's a fine line. <laughs> but isn't you that know, the problem? You've got to know where that line is. Absolutely. You know, when... Um, I'm going to take... No names. When, when, I take, <laughs> when Australian suppliers go to India, 
um, Australian companies, very sound, um, very well reimbursed employees, executives, senior executives. Uh, when they land in India, uh, we have contacts. So you know what? We get a limousine out to the aircraft, and they're picked up as they get down the steps of the aircraft. They're taken to the hotel. Their passports, their luggage all comes out later because, again, we have contacts, so everything is done through. Um, sometimes they might bring their wives or their partners along. So another employee is given the car and said, can you take her out shopping? Um, so she loves the... Um, the ornament, she loves the handicraft, she loves the saris. And she, I just say it might, of course, be a female CEO, yeah. and it might be the husband Absolutely. who's loving but the handicrafts I, and the I, I will trip. come to that. I will come to that too. But, and suddenly they say, oh, look, you know, it doesn't matter. Please, just, you just know, it's our, yeah. it's our pleasure. You're a guest. Is that, how do you look at that? Uh, even well, that's the, clear, isn't it? Yes. So, are you saying it's not clear? Well, I'm asking. Is it clear? Isn't clear? What is it? Well, you, is it facilitation? Well, it is, should be a show of hands. Corruption or not corruption? That's a corruption? Yeah. And anyone else not corruption? It's, it's business, says the former Australian diplomat. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. So it is not as simple as, as one might. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely not. Huh? Huh? Anyway, so, so you, what, right. what you're saying so, is... Okay, so but also uh, current, looking at the current situation. Look, corruption is also a social factor in India. It's, it comes from a whole lot of background, a whole lot of stories. And you have Guangxi in China. I mean, it's a Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But again, based on my experience in the last visit, the standard of living in India has substantially gone up especially for this very, very, very large, undefinable middle, middle class. class. Yeah. They don't need to make any money on the side. They're making enough of money in their uh, property investments through their salaries, um, by investing in all the other opportunities that India presents, including wind power, and that is a huge investment that's happening right now. Uh, and they don't need this. They don't need the side money. Uh, they're just saying, look, we will take whatever we want to take. It doesn't. We don't need any of that, and that that's going to be a big change. Ruth, do, do you have a perception from being on the ground? Yeah, that? I do. I was thinking that it seems to me that um, corruption, or shall we say, smoothing the, the way, is going up in India. It used to be a deal that you had to, you know, pay a little bit of backsheesh to get. I had to. I had to bribe someone to get married in India. Um, I had to bribe the police. As long as you're bribing the other half um, of the relationship. No, no, no. But, um, <laughs> but, but it was this that kind of low level, um, you know what I mean? Everyone, the, the people on the ground um, uh, slipping a little bit of backsheesh to someone else's. And it seems now that it's kind of uh, evolved into limousines, picking up people from the airport. So it, it's kind of, and, and I'm a little bit concerned about that um, because it seems like we're replicating the same kind of cosy deals between government and uh, and um, uh, corporate uh, entities that you see in China and uh, Australia. Um, so, and then at the same time, so many people have told me there's less corruption in India. Uh, Modi ji is not corrupt. He may be in Adani's jet, but he's not corrupt. <laughs> It's, it's kind of, yeah. We are almost out of time, but I did promise the gentleman down the back, if I could just very briefly, if you could just be brief with your question, that would be great. Uh, thanks very much. Um, look, 20 years ago, I chaired a mining summit in New Delhi, 
in which, at which time senior ministers of India made it clear that they had to make radical changes to encourage mining activity in Indonesia, which included moving away from a centralised economy, taking down mining responsibility to the states, allowing private investment in major mining projects and also encouraging foreign direct investment. The result of that was that half a dozen at least major Australian companies went over there to negotiate and to, over 10 years in some cases, to find a way of getting through the Indian system to start projects even with Indian partners. Subsequently, some of our states have got multiple trade and investment offices around India. Uh, my question is, since this is about mining facts... What information do we have at hand about the reasons why the major Australian com mining companies aren't there? What information do we have of what the Australian states have found in able to delivering services to the Indian states who needed expertise at that time and probably still do? And apart from trade, what indicators are there, what mining facts are there that there actually is a collaboration opportunity available to us? Hmm. Ian, do you want to just... Yeah, I mean, the, I think the simple answer to the question is the liberalisation that was promised didn't happen. Um, and so as a consequence, those opportunities didn't, didn't open up. And, it, you know, the liberalisation didn't happen for, for multiple different reasons, partly because there are existing Indian mining companies that are doing mining within India or uh, supplying coal for various different plants and so on um, that have already have got long-established relationships with political authorities. Um, the, the, the business politics bind in India has prevented liberalisation, uh, whereas, you know, in other countries we would say, if, you know, if you've got business-friendly politicians, they would be, be, be pro-liberal, pro-market. But in, in India, often it's been the case in, in key sectors like that, that the business interests have moved to maintain their own existing uh, the protected um, status within the, the government. And so if the simple answer is the liberalisation just hasn't happened uh, because those local actors, which probably couldn't compete with international actors like the kind of mining behemoths that we've got in this country, um, don't want that to happen. Look, we are almost out of time, so a really quick question to each of you just to finish. I just want to know whether you're optimistic, whether the, the, you know, this report about uh, India out to 2035 and the opportunities that were identified by Peter Varghese will turn out to be pie in the sky if we revisit this in 10, 15 years' time, or will it actually be a reality? Will we have been able to move past the four Cs, not the three Cs, and turn our relationship into something much stronger on an economic front as well as a security front? I, I think the answer has to be yes. It's not going to be easy. Um, but the great strength of that Varghese report is its realism. It's a very realistic, very practical, very pragmatic report that acknowledges that there are challenges uh, but, and identifies them and tries to identify ways forward. Um, and, you know, on both sides there is more, there's more realism about the economic relationship. We've given up on the idea of a bilateral free trade deal. I mean, formally, if you ask DFAT, they'll say we haven't. But effectively we have, at least for the, for the, for the moment. And that's good. That means we can now move forward in a, in a kind of much more realistic fashion. Marie, are you optimistic? 
Am I optimistic? I work on the environment in Asia. Um, <laughs> um, so the definition of optimism. Okay, um, uh, I, I'm optimistic. I'm definitely optimistic about uh, the Indian diaspora in Australia. I think that's uh, fabulous to have it. Um, fabulous to see it growing. I look forward to it enriching Australia's culture uh, and social and political mix um, into the short to medium to long term. Um, I'm. I'm, I'm less optimistic about India is facing Im immense challenges and they're not just about economics, they're also about the environment, they're also about social, uh, social in inequalities and uh, it would be fantastic if Australia could be a good partner as well as just seeing India as a place to get stuff from or uh, as a way to build a market to, to build something that could be more sustainable because anything that happens in India will affect us and the region really profoundly. So I suppose I have to be optimistic, otherwise I would be too depressed. Um, yeah. <laughs> Shabir, an optimist? Um, yep, of course I am. And, um, <laughs> but it's not, not going to be easy. Um, it's going to be difficult, but it's not impossible. And like Ian said, I think the report that Peter Vargas wrote uh, is excellent. Um, how that is implemented is the question. Um, and... I, I recall um, a time just after liberalization uh, when DFAT was releasing this book called India at the Midnight Hour, rather, mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. um, yes. Mm -hmm. That was perhaps the first real Australia-India engagement at that level post-liberalization, which then resulted in the formation of the Australia-India Council, uh, and then we had the first uh, promotion of Australia-India called Australia-India New Horizons. But that was a combined effort between government and industry. And I know that I used to fly up to Canberra quite regularly uh, together with a few other people from Sydney to meet with DFAT. And we would sit down across the round table and talk about strategy, about how to engage, what we're going to do, uh, down to the nitty gritty that when we ran the Australia promotion in India, who would be invited, how would we structure it, how would we engage with businesses? Um, after that, I haven't seen any such interaction between government and industry to engage with India. And if somehow, somehow we can revive that, I think that would make um, this optimism a reality. Please join me in thanking our fantastic panel very much. And if I can ask Penny Burt, uh, the group CEO of AsiaLink, to come up for some closing comments, that would be terrific. Um, Ali, thank you very much, but I think you just closed for me by thanking the panelists. <laughs> um, and I think I'm the only thing standing between all of you and dinner time. So I did actually want to say a very big thanks to Latrobe and Ewan for convening um, this very important conversation. Um, as AsiaLink, we, our focus is on driving Australia's engagement with Asia through business in the arts, in diplomacy. But I have to be frank, you know, we often feel that the conversation in um, Australia recently conflates Asia with China, and we actually forget that the whole relationship with India has to be a focus, and it requires work. I would say, you know, offering a huge thank you to our panellists from, you know, from my perspective... 
instead of actually it being a very binary, it's a good idea, it's a bad idea, it's a China hedge, conversations like this that can actually help us understand the granularity of the opportunity, both the opportunities, which I think you've laid out very well, but also the challenges, um, make it more possible for us to steer that long-term engagement in a way that's going to work for both sides. And I think better educating ourselves and actually, you know, taking a group like this and trying to multiply this group, you know, continuing to build the interest, build the conversation is going to be crucial to what we do. Um, I'm a member of the Australia India CEO Council. I was appointed just after I arrived back in Australia. And we've been working quite hard to encourage implementation of the Varghese report. It's great that we've got a future direction, but making that real is actually going to require a lot more effort across sectors. I think the other thing for me that you know, is incredibly valuable in the conversation tonight is trying to pull out what I asked you about because we're actually working also helping India develop its Australia strategy. It's how do we actually think through the prism from the Indian side about how to build a beneficial relationship and how to actually create an opportunity for engagement in a way that we just haven't had. I spent many, many years working in foreign affairs. And every five years, I can guarantee, there was always a new India strategy. And um, not to be sceptical or to be critical of my alma mater, um, I have honestly, in the last 30 years, not seen any of those really deliver on the bottom line. So in closing, what I'd like to say is for all of us in this room, for the re remarkable experts tonight, so beautifully facilitated by Ali, thank you, as always, um, we actually we have a responsibility here, I think, to step up, all of us as individuals and in our organisations on the journey to help these conversations keep happening. So thank you very much for the opportunity tonight. Thank you, Colonel. Thank you.